if you focus on performance, anxiety is its brother. If you focus on having fun, that's when you will be the best version of yourself. If you have fun, then you've won because you had fun and most likely they had fun as well. And in a state of having fun, we are relaxed. We get free access to our vocabulary, our thoughts, what we want to say, how we want to say it. We're in contact with our personality, with who we are. In a performance state, we're not. And people can see that. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn? And when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times best-selling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. If you are one of the millions of people who have seen my guest's work, then it is likely he's helped you to avoid death, use magical science, and master 110 techniques to do one thing, one very important thing, better than you ever did it before communicate. With over 100 million views of his videos, including his legendary TED Talks, How to Avoid Death by PowerPoint, The Magical Science of Storytelling, The 110 Techniques of Communication and Public Speaking, my guest is truly one of the most influential communication and storytelling experts on the planet. To say he's put in his time learning about his craft is putting it lightly. He spent seven years, yes, that's right, seven years studying 5,000 speakers of all skill sets, by the way, in order to distill the core skills of what makes a good communicator good, what makes a great communicator great, and what makes an outstanding communicator outstanding. This has allowed him to develop the 110 steps of communication, which he breaks down and gives you the building blocks, the fundamentals around what it takes to effectively communicate. Armed with this deep knowledge and understanding, he and his team delivered training in self-leadership, communication, and presentation skills to audiences across the planet. The focus is, and this is the cool part, It's always based on the latest research in neurology, psychology, and biology. This is what I love. We're going to dive into this today. We're going to learn about his love of brain chemistry. We're going to talk about his journey as a communication thought leader. And we'll look at the bioscience. We'll look at the genetics and the innate reasons why we respond and the ways in which we respond. And we will break down the magic of storytelling, the skills to be a master presenter, 
and the visuals you'll need to enhance your message. It is with great pleasure and delight that I have the opportunity to introduce my guest, David J.P. Phillips. (laughs) Thank you, Billy. The bar is set high. I feel it and I love it. I look forward to this, man. Thank you for having me. I am absolutely thrilled. Let's start with the quote. Quality is not an act. It is a habit. Aristotle. But before we go into Aristotle, I want to talk about something from your book. Okay. You have a a quote. I'll read the quote and I want you to answer this. What is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything? It's four to two. Simple, right? (laughs) Exactly. So simple. So your favorite book is has become a lot more famous as a result of modern media. But you look at somebody like an Elon Musk, who also has a love of this book. And I don't know if you know my backstory, but I was uh, fortunate enough to have a, a global training role at Tesla, which taught me a lot about speaking and presenting and all the things that you teach. And so just know that some of your teachings were felt around wow. Tesla. Wow. <laughs> so why is that your but why is that your favorite book? I know you've read it like 12 times at least. Why is that your favorite book? I think it's it's fascinating. I did it intuitively. I just read it once and I read it again and again and again. And what I loved about it was the out out of the box, out of the out of the out of the out of the box thinking. Like anything that you may expect that the story will go in this or that direction, it never does. It always goes in a different, in a very unexpected direction. And what was interesting is, I think it's about four years ago, I read a study where they asked people to read books like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and then just um, fairly predictable books, right? And then they gave creative tasks to these people. And everyone that read books similar to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they performed better in the creative tasks than the reading the books, which were fairly predictable. So what I'd intuitively done is I'd read that book over and over again whenever I needed to be creative. I didn't realize that then, but thanks to the study, I realized that that was the actual reason for me choosing to read that book over and over again. It was like the fuel of creativity for my brain. Interesting. Wow. So that's a great way for you to re-engage that creativity muscle. And the other thing that's really interesting is the psychology that goes into this idea of you want the unpredictable. And I think in general, people are tuning out. And I really want to guide our conversation with the brain science being forward, which shouldn't be a problem for you. So when we think about surprise, for example, we're going to be more alerted because it's something new. If it's the same thing over and over again, our mind automatically tunes that out. And so if we're surprised by something, whether it be in a book, a presentation, social media post, we're automatically alerted. Our brain fires up to pay attention because if it was something that we've seen a million times, our brain is going to relax and be on autopilot and not paying as as close attention. So talk a little bit about that component and how that ties into the topic of speaking and presenting. I call it spicing to spice a presentation. And I actually had this part-time hobby when I started the 5,000 public speakers for seven years to find 110 common skills we all can use when we communicate. To say the least, I got bored now and then. So I I found this separate (laughs) path. (laughs) And that was to count every variation that 
big speakers used. Every kind of variation that big and great speakers used out of these 5,000. And I found 137 of them. 137 variations. A variation can be a story. It can be a sudden change where you use a flip chart and then a change to using a metaphor, then changing to use a simile and then maybe going back to a PowerPoint and then doing a race of hands and so on. And there's 137 of these. And what was interesting is when I looked at talks, which weren't actually interesting, the content wasn't actually good but the amount of spices were great and people tended to enjoy and grade those talks more than the talks which actually had good and like content which you could truly take with you content that actually meant something for you as a person and i found that fascinating and my conclusion what i came to is that our perceived the perception we have of a talk is related to the number of spices in the talk and that that is what that's what you were on to like contrast and surprises yeah and it wow and i love the the metaphor or the analogy of a recipe because with spices right you would think a chef might not want to put every spice into a dish but it, it seems to me that when you do spice up a presentation it helps tremendously is there such a thing of overspicing a dish in the realm of speaking. <laughs> yes, there is, depending on context. So imagine if you are at a funeral and you're going to do eulogy. Is that the word for it in English? A eulogy, yes. Eulogy, sorry. It's my, my semi, my 50% English, <laughs> my 50% Swedish, which fails me sometimes. And you're about to deliver that and you start using spices in regards to humor, role play and drama, maybe that's not the place to use those kind of spices. So I'd say that the only way you could overspice something is that you use them in the wrong context. But even a, a speech at a funeral would need to have or would benefit from spices. We've heard so many speeches in weddings and in funerals where we go like, oh my God, this is so boring. I can fall asleep. By just adding spices into those, you would grab everybody's absolute attention. Mm, great point. So I want to talk a little bit about your personal journey because I think it really is an important part of your story. And then we'll dive into brain and presenting skills and all the stuff that you're well known for. Before we do, I, I want to kind of go back a little bit. And, and I mentioned briefly that Elon also has the love of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And he was having his own existential crisis as a kid, as a teenager. And one of the things that stands out from my experience being in at least somewhat close proximity to him, I'm not saying we were on fist bumping, you know, on a daily basis or anything like that. But one of the key things that he did exceptionally well was ask questions. One of the best. And so I want to read this quick quote from Elon, which I think is an interesting quote when somebody asked him about Hitchhiker's Guide, I don't know if you know this, but he says, to the better degree we can understand the universe, then we could better know what questions to ask. Then in whatever the question is that most approximates, what's the meaning of life? That's the question we can ultimately get closer to understanding. Yeah. And so I thought to the degree that we can expand the scope and scale of consciousness and knowledge, 
then that would be a good thing. And again, this is from an, an existential crisis moment in his own life. Very wise words. Very wise words. So let's talk a little bit, and I hope you don't mind, I might, I might go a little bit personal. I know you some of the stuff you share. You went on a walk with your wife. It was a very important moment in your life in which you experienced an emotion. You describe it as experiencing that emotion for the first time. What was that emotion? Why was that such a profound experience? Mm. It always moves me when I, when I talk about this, but it was happiness. This was about six years now. And I realized, or I, rather my wife stopped and she asked me what, what was going on. And I tried to explain what I was feeling. And she said, hey, that's happiness. And I realized that I couldn't even remember when I felt it the last time. It was such a new sensation in my body. When I look at photos, I can see that I probably felt it when I was a kid. But for the last 16, 17 years of my adult life, it turns out that I'd been depressed and I didn't really know it because I went into the depression so slowly and after I'd had it for such a long while, I thought that life was supposed to be dark and pointless, but it wasn't. And that day, that walk gave me the inspiration to hack my depression. Thank you. I hesitated asking the question and anytime you ask a question like that, it does, you feel it, you feel empathy. You as a human being on a heart level, on a human level, I can't help but to, for 17 years, feel the, I'm sure the emotions and the pain that you had in your life. And I'm so happy that you've been able to, as you've described it, hack depression and, and also help other people, which I think is a core part of your story, which is really, really beautiful. I'll share in a bit my personal story as it relates to learning about you and your work and how it's helped me. There's a lot there. Before I get to that, let's talk about this quote that you have, which is, life is less about what happens to you and more about how you react to it. Why is this the case? Well, I think a lot of people, they just take life as it comes and the actions that happens, they just, usually we I guess we don't really believe that we're in control of our life as much as we actually are. What I learned, what I didn't know six years ago, was that I was able to, to change any emotion I have in my body to a different emotion. And what was interesting with this was that, you know what, Billy, this was a key. I'd been coaching speakers and public speakers and managers and salespeople for close to 10, 15 years of my life. But there was one thing that was missing and I couldn't find it. Whatever book I read, I couldn't find what was missing. But what was missing was the same thing that I found in myself, which was that my internal communication was messed up. What I was saying to myself was messed up. Before going up on stage, while on stage, when leaving stage, when preparing for my talk, going over and over what I did and didn't do on stage. And then thanks to this insight, which was happiness, I learned and I spent the last six years mastering my own biology so that I can change any thought that I wish to change and any feeling I wish to change when I need to change it. So when I go up on stage now, for instance, I choose, depending on my audience, I choose to induce dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphins by three different methods. And now when I go up on stage, I've chosen 
which person, which version of me I want to be, I need to be for that audience. And that puts me into the best possible state of being the best possible speaker. The worst thing I could do, which I have done for so long and which so many speakers do, is they spend the last 10, 15 minutes going through their manuscript, going through what they're going to say, just tensing up, feeling nervous. Mm -hmm. That is actually putting you the worst version of yourself on stage. So through this 17 years of darkness, I found the ultimate key to truly leveling up as a human, as a speaker. And I call that internal communication. And all my other TED Talks, as you mentioned, PowerPoint, storytelling, 110 steps, is what I define as external communication. And when you become a master of internal communication and a master of external communication, boy, wow, they are rare, those people. But the great thing is that anyone can learn to master both. So the question is, your next TED Talk, from what I understand, is going to be on this. Do you have that date picked out for internal communication? I, I would love to be there. If not, if if, if uh, I mean, it's <laughs> how, how do you know this? This is this is supposed to be a secret. It's did, did my, <laughs> I'm my... in your mind. I am your internal. <laughs> <laughs> how do you know this? But yes, the first of June in Switzerland is going to be my fourth TED Talk. Yes. Breaking news. You heard it here first. <laughs> this is now trending. I'm going to go to PewDiePie and uh, see if he I could uh, blast this. I found that out, though. <laughs> so take that after. you have a new book. I'm going to just read a bit of how you've described the importance of this book. You say it's easily the most important book that you've ever written and the book that took the longest to develop. You highlight that it's the 17 years of depression, six to seven years of research, study of thousands and thousands of people that have turned into 220 pages of innovative, fresh perspectives combined with clean, raw, tested tips and recipes for personal development. I, that's a key part, personal development, which, which is what I see a lot more of your gravitational pull, especially on TikTok, is in the realm of helping people, I think, with that more internal piece. By the way, yeah. that was my part. He didn't say that part. And the book saved your life. Mm. The book saved your life. You shared that recently on a, on a LinkedIn post. I had to translate it, I believe, mm. because the book, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's first going to be out in Sweden. And what's the plan for the book? Well, you are one step ahead of your game all the time, because today I signed with a global agent for it to be launched internationally. So it's going to come out in multiple languages next year. So yeah, you'll have it in your hands. You know, books take a while to publish and get out there, but it should be in your hand, hands next December. So that's going to be amazing. When it was launched here in Sweden, it blew everything out from the shelves. Like it was, it became the number one best-selling book in Sweden, nonfiction, immediately the day it was launched and has since it was launched. So that's, it's a new perspective on, on personal development. And it truly teaches you how to induce dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, endorphins, testosterone, whenever, at will, you wish. Like, I'll just give you one example, and all of you listening to this, this is, this is brutally good. Like, never forget this tip. Imagine that you're coming home from work, you're filled with what is called dopamine and cortisol, your two driving forces, and you go into your kids or your family. With those substances, you won't feel, see, hear them, you won't feel their hug, you won't hear what they did during that day. But if you just took two minutes, two minutes in your car before going in, and you looked at a clip which brought out empathy in you, which made you cry almost. 
And you looked at that for two minutes. This means that you have now, by will, induced oxytocin. Now you go into your family. You will see them. You will hear them. You will want to be close to them. It is you choosing who you would like to be in that moment instead of allowing emotions to just come by chance. And then moving this into the public speaking arena, going up on stage. Do this before you go up on stage. Just spend two minutes doing this. Something. I look at my daughter, then I go up. Mm. Because this will make you instantly present, caring toward your audience. That is a place you are not when you're filled with dopamine and cortisol going through your manuscript, the last thing that you're doing. That's self-leadership. This gives even more understanding as to why you would say that if people understood what was in your book, it would create world peace. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like every war and every action of hatred stems from our desire to get our substances in our brain fulfilled. That's where they come from. So yeah, if people would actually understand that they could create them by themselves without hurting and causing pain and destruction, the world would be a better place by far. And for those who want some examples of what David just spoke about, go to his TikTok because he's got some great videos that illustrate just the power of seeing visuals that could conjure up these six substances that you all have. You all experience these substances probably on a daily basis, but it's the regulation of it your self-regulation of it that I think could really be the difference maker. And, the, and it it's all comes down to awareness. When yeah. you're more aware, more aware of yourself, and this is why it's self-leadership, which I like that framing and that terminology, you're able to turn it on and off like a faucet, if mm. I'm understanding correctly. Yes, absolutely. More or less, like you are or can be in full control of your emotions if you just learn how to. And it makes makes not the entire difference in your life, but a massive difference in your life, truly. And my father passed three years ago, God bless his soul, beautiful human being. And I have two options to mourn him. Either I mourn him through stress, cortisol, which goes, I wish he was here. I wish he didn't die. I wish he'd come back. Like, that's a destructive version of mourning. Instead, I spent the entire week every conscious moment, more or less, being grateful for everything that he did. A gratefulness has the, the great upside of producing oxytocin, which is a healing neuropeptide in your brain. So the two ways of mourning in this case would be cortisol, which is destructive, or oxytocin, which is healing. By not knowing this in life, some people then tend to go through the destructive mourning process and they go mm. in year after year, which turns into depression and anxiety. By just knowing that, hey, if I mourn through gratefulness, it's actually a healing process instead. Now, the book contains like 50 different skill sets like this, which just makes life so much easier choosing the emotion that you want to go through in the way that you deserve to. I can't wait. I can't wait. And uh, I've been to Sweden several times. My yeah. brother married a Swede. They're now since divorced. If they were together, I'd be like, hey, can you just translate this book for me? So, <laughs> but, but that can't happen. I think she'd think it's pretty weird for her ex-brother-in-law to reach out. So <laughs> we won't go there. I'll see too that you get the first copy <laughs> as soon as it's out, really. I love it. So 
Let's dive in on brain, not that we haven't already, but let's talk about it with the perspective of speaking and understanding how it could be applied in the realm of when we are either presenting in a boardroom or on stage, or even when we communicate like we do today, you and I were communicating through technology that exists. Mm Mm-hmm. You're a phenomenal communicator across the board, and YouTube is an, is somewhat of a new era. You've been on it for a long time, but you've really embraced it just since I've started following you over the last three years. And I want to talk about the nuance and the distinction between those. But before we get into that, which I'm super excited to dive in on the YouTube front, I got to admit something. I left Tesla, and I was in this state to figure out what my next move was. So I said, okay, I'm going to start a podcast. I started my podcast and somebody gave me an opportunity to do, because of my job, I taught people how to present in a training capacity. That was my role. I was head of global onboarding for Tesla. I was head of global sales training for Tesla. So my team taught people how to talk to people. So I knew a thing about public speaking, but nowhere near in the atmosphere of the study and the time and attention that you put into it and really the framework that you put into it. So like anyone who wants to learn, you go out and discover. This became especially true when I had the opportunity to lead a public speaking workshop at UC Berkeley. And so your videos, of course, were immediately at the forefront of some really meaty ideas and topics that I thought would be valuable to share specifically the angels and devils cocktail. So I'm going to give you a challenge. I think, I don't know if it's a challenge or not, but I'm going to give you a challenge rather than do the normal, explain what it is. Cause everybody does that. I would love to have you tell a story, maybe the story of how you either came up with this or how you decided to incorporate this into your own teaching while demonstrating the power of the angel and devils cocktail. Is that something that you're up for doing? I think I understand what you mean and what you want me to do. You want me to describe the angels and the devil's cocktail and make people feel the angels and the devil's cocktail. Is that correct? You got it. All right. Wow. I can easily do it. I do it in my storytelling TED Talk. It's just that it takes a little bit of time and it's not something that can be done immediately. In a way, we've already done it. When I spoke about my father... I think a lot of people felt empathy, which means that that was part of an angel's cocktail. And if they find what I'm saying interesting, we're creating dopamine. So during this talk, you and I, the people who are listening are probably feeling an angel's cocktail with dopamine and oxytocin in it. So I'd say that this podcast, this episode will actually produce an angel's cocktail in those who are listening. So I think we'll have to go with that because creating an entire angel's cocktail in anything like a realm of three minutes is, I've never done that before. And I don't think it can be done. I need 15 minutes to create it. But hey, go to the storytelling TED Talk, have a look at that, and you'll see what we mean. It's 18 minutes. If you haven't seen it, it'll be short of mind-blowing, I think. But say for like stressful, if we have a look at this, last summer, I said, no, it's two summers now ago. Yeah. It was when COVID hit, you know, COVID hit and every booking I had was canceled and we lost, we lost so much money every month 
and I was trying to reorganize my entire company, going from physical keynotes to digital material. And it was one of the hardest things I have ever done because I've got a team of 16 people and everybody had to be redirected in a new in a new direction. And then I'm standing by my computer and I'm writing away. And then suddenly my son comes in and he screams, dad, 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 come, 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 come. And I run out of my office and I'm, I'm like, what, what's happening? And he goes, my mom, mom, she's down. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? And I run up to the manor and she's outside, barely, you can't, like, she can't speak. And the only thing she can say is, say is I've had a stroke. I've had a stroke. I've had a stroke. And uh, during you to COVID, they rush her into hospital. I can't come with her. And I'm trying to contemplate what's happening. And then I still haven't heard anything. And then, <laughs> this is so weird. From I start to figure out, it's not intentionally, but somewhere here within the next 24 hours, I realized that my best friend has taken every penny from my company and everything I own. Uh, he'd been working for me for the better part of five years. So I was flat broke and my wife was in hospital. I had no business. And this is, this is three years ago. And that is mad. Now, when telling that story, it probably produces cortisol in those listening. It also produces oxytocin because there's a sense of empathy in it. There's also a sense of dopamine because you want to know what happened. So if I just say, yeah, and that was that, there'll be a, like, a hole. You want to know what, how did this end? After a week, my wife came back from hospital and she's my role model in self-leadership. And she is a better version, according to herself now, than she was before. Because she appreciates every second of her valuable, valuable life. She shows more love, care, and presence than before. And she says that even if the stroke shortened her life by 10, she gained 20 by appreciating what she has more. In my case, I never got a hold of my friend. I simply had to rebuild the company from scratch, from nowhere, with practically nothing. And we did. I'm a person who doesn't give up. And we managed to do that. And we launched a product called the Presenter Mastery Training. And it is such a good digital training that people go through the content as slowly as they can so that they won't run out. Mm. And I wrote the book. I saved the company. I saved everybody's jobs. They helped me out. Three years later, it was the best, best, worst, worst period of my life. And I would never do it differently. And that's usually now you feel serotonin because there's a conclusion and you feel satisfied that you heard the stories end. So that would be a combination of angels, a little bit of devils there as well. Thank you for sharing and something so personal. I, yeah, I mean, it is interesting how life's moments that are so shakingly painful can also be so important and put in perspective the few moments that we have on this ball of rock flying through the sky, we, we sometimes take for granted that we're given this life. And sometimes. when we, <laughs> right, exactly. I relate to your story so much in that, A, it's a human story, so humans can relate, but also very personally, 
the story that you share in your TED Talk, which I know you've had some debate on whether or not you should share the story about what happened with your child that you lost in pregnancy. My wife went through six miscarriages. So I know that feeling. And this year she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Thankfully, thankfully they caught it early and she's getting all the treatment that she needs. But yeah, your best friend, your companion, this person that's so special and meaningful to you. I'm sorry, man. Thanks. So these, these powerful emotions that exist and that we can, one, self-regulate and two, utilize when we are presenting, they have a profound effect on us internally, but they also have a profound effect externally. So I want to echo what you said. Go watch that. If you're one of the people who haven't watched that, which has got seen, I've watched it at least 50 times. Not no. joking. At, le- <laughs> at least, at least 50 times. <laughs> wow. And the other two are amazing. Let's apply this a little bit and discuss some of the presenting skills, such as pausing, pacing, and body language, things like that. Why do they have such a profound effect on us emotionally? Due to something called the somatic feedback loop, most likely. Somatic feedback loop means, well, you have a somatic nervous system. That means that you're willpowered nervous system. So if you raise your arm, that's somatic. If you smile, that's somatic, i.e. by will. You choose to do something with your body face. Now, emotions work from the inside out and the outside in. So when you smile, your brain will analyze that and produce endorphins, which will make you feel happier. So a smile, even if it wasn't real to begin with, has the power to create happiness. And the same thing goes for, I do this absolutely phenomenally interesting exercise in my presenter mastery training and that is that i ask people to present their favorite hobby without using gestures mm. nonverbal communication at all no facial expressions go and they do that for 30 seconds and then i say go 30 seconds now you're allowed to use gestures and nonverbal communication and facial expressions and then they go <laughs> and then i ask them after did you increase the volume of your voice? And they said, yes. Were the emphasis stronger? Yes. Was your tonation different? Yes. Why did you change all these? I didn't ask you to. And then they went, I don't know, it just happened. Yes. When you start using gestures, your brain looks at that from the perspective that you are excited and then changes and adapts your voice accordingly. So your tonality, your use of voice has an impact on your nonverbal communication and your nonverbal communication has an impact on your voice. It's all connected. It's super interesting to, to coach people like in one way or another on this. Like one, one so out of these 110 skills, there's one, it's just one, some skills are called mother skills. Why they're called mother skills is because they impact 20 to 30 other skills. So if you just mm. become good at that one, you become automatically good at 20, 30 other skills, which is magic almost. And functional gestures is one of them. Like, use good functional gestures in your talk, and that will impact 20 to 30 other skills. Another one which is very interesting is volume. So you take a person who has a base volume of five, which is, it's a good base volume. You ask that person to just increase their volume 
to a six. Not anymore. Just go from if this is this is a five, this would be a six. What's so interesting with that is that just that shift gives an impact on at least 15 other skills. As soon as you increase the volume of your voice, you can see the person standing straighter. Their gestures become more distinct. Their pauses become stronger and better. Their emphasis become more vivid. Their gaze changes based on that they just increase their volume a little bit. It's mm. crazy. These mother skills are madly cool. I love that. I love that they, the interplay and how one helps another. Mm. You, you break down and again, go watch this. And this will only scratch the surface. In a minute, we'll, we'll get to some of the ways people could get more information and more knowledge and really enroll in the, the tools that you offer and the, and the services that you offer and the systems that you offer and the education that you offer. So one of the things that you talk about are these five layers of communication, which includes words, facial expressions, body language, gestures, and voice. Yeah. And that they must kind of all be in sync and how they all interplay. One mm. of the things you highlighted, which I thought was really interesting, is that we as humans struggle the most, it seems, on facial expressions. That's the area that we don't seem to have as much aptitude, I guess you could say. Why, why do you think that is? You know what? I don't know. It's like nobody knows. Why? <laughs> I, I, out of 20 people, there's one which have a full range of facial expressions. Like One out of 20. Mm. Where does that come from? Voice? There's usually at least six or seven out of 20 who have a, a good voice dynamic. And body language, depending on which culture you look at, Usually more, but no, I can't explain it. Like it's it's like it it's underused because we don't think we need it, perhaps. But the great thing with the facial expression is that you can practice it though. And and then my best recommendation is to look for facial expressions which you haven't seen before, and then you copy them. So if you're looking at a news show or something and you see a facial expression, just pause or just try to copy it as they're speaking. Like frown mm -hmm. your forehead or smile in the way that they're smiling or open their uh, your eyes as they open their, in their eyes and just practice different facial expressions like that. It goes really quickly to practice and become better at using facial expressions. Why do you think comedians do so well when you're looking at them and you're evaluating them? They seem to have an overall higher level of performance. What is it about them? Well, yes, they do score the most. They usually score... A good stand-up comedian can score 100 points out of the 110. An average presenter, 30, 40. An average public speaker as a profession, 60, 70. Yeah, stand-up comedians, the good ones, are in different league. Why? Probably because their range of opportunities are greater. Like they do, usually do a lot of role play and voice changes. And you, mm -hmm. that, that just gives you the opportunity to use more skills. And when you get the opportunity to use more skills, you obviously practice more skills. And the more skills you practice, the better you become. And therefore, you can score up to 100 points. But yes, they, they are brilliant. And when you look at the greatest Hollywood actors, they are usually scoring around 100 points as well. They are just sublime at using their entire repertoire of skills. Mm -hmm. Well, they get reps. They get more reps and more practice and oh, yeah. often more rehearsed. So it, it seems to me that naturally they're going to build that skill set 
and one of the things that you talk about is it is a skill set. Mm. You've also admitted that you struggled a little bit on YouTube at the beginning because mm. there's stage speaking, they're speaking in a boardroom, they're speaking, communicating, interpersonal communication. What did you learn about yourself when you started really becoming active on YouTube? And how do you get yourself in the zone to perform there? I love, by the way, go check out David's YouTube. It's phenomenal. I love it. I'm going to draw some inspiration from that for some of the things that I'm working on. Mm. Love what you're doing there. But talk a little bit about that journey. Well, A, I, I hadn't done social media until uh, two years ago. None whatsoever. It was like literally my first thing. I reacted on PewDiePie and PewDiePie reacted on me and my channel just blew up insane to insane levels. And I got performance anxiety because PewDiePie to me is the rock and roll star of YouTube. And suddenly I was there and I was going to do his job. And I just, <laughs> it was so nice though, because I'd been doing public speaking for 15 years. I'd felt so powerful because I knew the subject and this truly challenged me. It was a new arena, new ways of doing it. And I had to adapt to that. And that gap there gave me, gave me months of performance anxiety until I until I learned maybe the most important lesson I've learned recently when it comes to public speaking and social media. And that is, if you focus on performance, anxiety is its brother. If you focus on having fun, that's when you will be the best version of yourself. If you have fun, then you've won because you had fun and most likely they had fun as well. And in a state of having fun, we are relaxed get free access to our vocabulary, our thoughts, what we want to say, how we want to say it. We're in contact with our personality, with who we are. In a performance state, we're not. And people can see that. So when I realized that on TikTok, on Instagram, on YouTube, on LinkedIn, just being, having, if I think it's fun, then it's a win. And funnily enough, it becomes a win to others as well. Sometimes the most simple advice is the best. I love that we're going to end with, with that being a very important message here, which is remember to have fun. If you're obsessing over all of the other things, then your mind is on all those other things. But if you're focused on having fun, people are going to see that and people want to be around people who are having fun. I mean, I think part of the problem when you're speaking to a camera is you, you forget that you're not speaking to a camera, you're speaking to people. Mm. And you got to have the energy and the vibe like you're speaking to people because that's what's going to resonate with others. And that's what's going to make them feel connected to you. We didn't go into design, but I, I'll just say this. Go watch the TED Talk, How to Avoid Death by PowerPoint. We followed this to a T at Tesla. We were very big on either no bullets or few bullets. Keep it one message per slide. Don't have... like. My biggest pet peeve is when people have a full sentence and then they read that full sentence. Yeah. And I think the through line and of course, size and contrast and having a black background and all these things that you'll learn by going to watch this TED Talk. I think the core message is it's a visual representation of what's being said, but it should not be the presentation. The presentation is you. Mm. You're, you're the show, yeah. not this other piece. Now, visuals are helpful because they help to bring home a point or give something that's going to enhance what you're saying in some way, shape, or form, not detract. Yeah. And so I, I think that's a really important piece to being a well-rounded presenter is having that in your arsenal, in your toolkit. So let's, let's talk lastly about 
where people can get more of the brilliance of David J.P. Phillips, which go to davidjpphillips.com, go to your LinkedIn. And also, of course, please make sure that you're going to headgain.com where you have literally the widest, broadest, and most powerful collection of tools that people could find to help them be better communicators and storytellers. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, Headgain was part of what I built during the time when I had to restructure the entire organization. And it's a matrix of my brain when it comes to presentation skills and public speaking. I think there's close to 600 videos in there, which will take you through all these 110 skills, the storytelling, the uh, death by PowerPoint, how to deliver brilliant digital content, even self-leadership. I'd also recommend people to go to headgain.com slash JP are my initials because that will bring you to the presenter mastery training it's a bit hidden because we don't want a massive influx of people at the moment we're still building testing building testing but we're receiving absolute rave reviews and that's where you could then join every week and and live with me and to learn more about mastering your presentation skills so i'd say that and then hit me up on linkedin uh, instagram youtube i'll be around and i tend to answer every single comment i get as yeah so yeah hey billy that was fun this was fun and you should have more fun in life right so i'd say that let's do this and if people enjoyed it and they want more of it let's meet up next year 2023 do another one maybe a live one but otherwise we'll do digitally again if you want to and we'll just do more of it consider it done a live one it will be i thank you for your time and your brilliant mind and your soul and your heart and everything you put into the work you do, it's felt around the world. Even if somebody doesn't get a chance to tell you, like I'm telling you today, it matters. David J.P. Phillips, thank you for being on the show. I'm so, so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Billy. You make me cry. <laughs> Damn, you are such a thoughtful chap. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.